0: So we're going to get to this morning's message. We're going to be studying from Isaiah chapter 6 this morning as we conclude this series. We've said as we've talked about through this series, we've been looking at these things called theophanies. They're actually visible manifestations of God in scripture. And we've been looking specifically at Christophanies, visible manifestations of Christ in the Old Testament specifically. And we saw that in the first week that God is the word, that Jesus himself is the word, as John tells us. And the second week, we saw that Jesus is the commander. He is the commander of the Lord's army that led Joshua to victory, and that he is the rock in the desert. John tells us that he was the spiritual rock that the children of Israel drank from, that sustained them in the desert. And last week, Pastor Dan was here and showed us that Melchizedek, this king, was a type of Messiah, He was a type of Jesus, but Jesus is always the greater king. He's always the greater priest, the greater prophet. He's the greater Moses. He's the greater David. They're all types of Jesus, pointing to the one true king, the one true priest, the one true prophet. And we saw on Christmas Eve that he came and he inhabited us. He became one of us. He was incarnate as a baby. He actually became a human being and took on human form for us. And today we're going to conclude by looking at Jesus in Isaiah, because again, we see him appear in the Old Testament, active as he's been from the beginning of time, but for a purpose, to pronounce our salvation, but not just to pronounce our salvation, but to send us into the world. And we'll see that as we explore Isaiah this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to open them up. We're going to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And this morning we're going to teach through the chapter, and we'll teach through the whole chapter. It's a short chapter, so you don't have to be too concerned about, <laughs> too concerned. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And then he said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts. And turn and be healed. And I said, For how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remain in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as you are high and exalted, seated on your throne, as you promised to be here with us this morning. We humbly come before you We humbly sit at your feet this morning and ask that you once again teach us from your word, that you mold us and shape us and teach us the truth. Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be truly pleasing in your sight, our God, our King, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at this story, there's a few things that we need to sort of get straight to help us put it into context and understand exactly what's happening here with Isaiah. And the first one is, is that who is this King Uzziah that he identifies? He says it was in the year the King Uzziah died, and it's important for us to understand who, I, who Uzziah. Yeah, let's say that three times. Who Uzziah is? Uzziah is king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Remember, after Solomon died, the kingdoms were divided, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And Uzziah is a king of Judah. He's the 12th king in line in the king of Judah, and he's a good king. We're told he did what was good in the eyes of the Lord, and he served as king of Judah for 52 years. That's longer than David. That's longer than Solomon. And we're told that Israel flourished during his reign that they were thought of well and they were powerful. He had an army of over 300,000 men and every single soldier was well equipped. They had the latest and greatest in weaponry and they were taken care of and fed and they loved their king. And he designed weapons like catapults and built (coughs) ramparts for them to fight and to protect Judah. And we're told that Others came from far away like Egypt to listen to him and learn from him, just like Solomon. Just like Solomon, we're told that as his power grew, so did his pride. In fact, one day it reached the pinnacle where he walked into the temple, a place the king was not supposed to go, to offer Incense, to burn incense on the altar of the Lord is something only the high priest was supposed to do. And as he's entering the temple, the high priest comes in, along with 80 other priests, imploring him, King Uzziah, this is not something you should be doing. This will not bring you honor. This will bring you nothing but disgrace. But King Uzziah was powerful and great in his own eyes. And he got angry at the priest and basically said, I can do whatever it is I want to do. And at that moment, he was afflicted by God with leprosy. And he was carried away into a separate quarters and he was sort of in exile within his own palace for the remainder of his kingdom. And we're told that his son Jotham ruled in his place for him. And it was in the year that King Uzziah died, that year, he wasn't dead yet, that year that we're told that Isaiah is brought into the throne room. Isaiah's book is a story about Isaiah and his call to be a prophet, someone who would come to his people and proclaim God's truth, which included God's judgment over their sin, but his mercy and forgiveness if they would turn from their sin. And the prophets were called to go and tell them exactly what the Lord has to say. And here we are in Isaiah chapter 6, and this is the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. You'd think it might be in verse, chapter 1, but chapter 6 is actually the beginning of his ministry. So who's Isaiah? Isaiah was part of the royal family, we're told, from Jewish tradition. He was related to King Uzziah, and that's important to understand because he would have known what happened in the temple that day. But he was royalty. And people see that in his writing because he writes with such rich Hebrew text in a fashion that sort of says to us, he must have been educated, he must have been from the royal family. Isaiah was something he was esteemed within the land. He was royalty. And now this day, In the year the king Uzziah died, the year that he had been afflicted with leprosy for trying to burn incense in the earthly temple of the Lord, that he's transported to the heavenly temple, into the actual temple of God. Isaiah is brought before the Lord, and we're told that the Lord's train filled the temple. And we see that that Lord on the throne is Jesus because that's what John tells us. John says in his gospel that Isaiah said all this, everything that he said, quoting from this very chapter, that he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about seeing Jesus. It was Jesus that Isaiah saw. It was his glory that filled the temple. And when he saw the seraphs, flying around, proclaiming holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Uzziah had to be reminded of what happened. Or Isaiah must have been reminded of what happened to Uzziah, who entered the earthly temple with the intent of burning incense, was afflicted with leprosy. And now here, Isaiah is transported into the heavenly temple into the holy of holies, because there is God himself. And Isaiah has to feel overwhelmed and frightened. Because we hear him say the very next words, woe to me. Woe to me, for I am ruined. He's basically saying, I'm as good as dead. You're Isaiah, and you're brought into this temple, and you see the Lord on his throne. And the seraphs are singing this song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And at the sound of their voices, we're told that the doorposts shake and the threshold shakes. Everything in the temple is shaking just at the mention of God's glory. That word glory in the Hebrew means weightiness, means weight. And there is nothing weightier in all of existence than God himself. And just at the mention of his glory, the heavenly temple shakes. Tim Keller tells us that when God's presence comes to the earth, we're reminded from scripture that the earth shakes, the earth quakes. Because God's presence is heavier than the earth. The same thing happened to Isaiah. He's brought into the presence of God, and I can guarantee you it wasn't just the temple that was shaking that day. Because the reality of being in God's presence caused Isaiah to quake. Timothy Keller tells us that's the difference between God as a concept And God is a reality. When God is heavier than you, there's this self-quake. But when God is lighter than you, that's God as a concept. When you come into the presence of God's word, or you experience his presence and it doesn't change you, that's God as a concept because God is lighter than you. But Some of you have had this experience where you've read God's word. And you start to shake. You start to quake inside. You've read something that changes you. That God has revealed to you about himself and about you for the first time. And you have this self quake. That's God's glory changing you. That's what happens to Isaiah that day in the temple. God changes him. Because he realizes He's standing in the presence of true holiness. The seraphs say, holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew, there is no holy, holier, holiest. They say that by saying, holy, holy, holy. There is no one holier than God, and Isaiah experienced that that day. And you could see him flat down on his face, shaking and trembling, because he's in the presence of true holiness. See, probably up until that time, He's royalty. He considers himself better than most. Maybe not better than the king, but he's royalty. We do the same thing. When we compare ourselves to others, I might not be as good as she is, but I'm certainly better than he is. That is until we come into the presence of true holiness. Just as Isaiah says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. When you come into the true presence of God and his presence changes you, you realize just how unholy you are. And he convicts you of your pride. And he changes you. That's what happened to Isaiah. And he has to be thinking. He's done for because the seraphs were told picked up a coal from the altar. And what's interesting is seraph translated as fiery ones. And they're not even worthy of picking up the coal with their hands. They have to use tongs because it is so glorious. And it's with those tongs that the seraph flies to him, covering their feet and their eyes from this glory. And Isaiah has to think he's done because that's what fire means in the Old Testament, God's judgment. He had to have thought, this is the end. But yet the seraph flies to him and touches his lips with the coal. And he doesn't die. He isn't destroyed. But the seraph looks to him and says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. the last thing he had to be expecting. The very last thing. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. To help us understand the depth of that, we really need to understand what it means to have our sin atoned for. Something that was done for him, not something he did of himself, not because he was royalty, but because God had mercy upon him. And we see that atoning for sin includes two things. First, to expiate, meaning to remove, to get rid of, to take away. That's what the seraph is saying to him. Your sin has been taken away from you. Not only that, there's this word called propitiate, which means to appease, to placate. Who is it that's being pleased and placated? It's God. His wrath. Has been appeased. Someone has taken my punishment from me and for me. Someone is being punished in my stead so that I can still stand in the presence of God. That I can be declared without guilt, without sin. How is that possible? We know ourselves better than anyone knows us. And no matter how much we try to hide it, we understand our sin. But how is it possible for that to be removed from us? That is the great news of the gospel. And it's not something that we struggle with. It's something that our government struggles with. It's something that our justice system has struggled with. What I find fascinating is you see that in our courts, back in the Civil War, at the end of the Civil War. Remember, before the Civil War, one country divided. Afterwards, two become one again. And afterwards, the Congress passed a law that anybody serving as an attorney prior to the Civil War, if they had served in the Confederate government, They were no longer allowed to practice law. They were to be disbarred. They could no longer serve. And one of those attorneys, who was a senator from Arkansas, his last name Garland, Augustus Garland, brought a suit and said, that's not right. That's against the rule of law. And he brought the case all the way to the Supreme Court. He got to argue the case before the Supreme Court. And by rules of law that I won't explain, the Supreme Court voted in his favor and said, yes, the law that the Congress passed, it's against the Constitution. It's not lawful. And in fact, Andrew Johnson, president at the time, pardoned Garland. Pardoned him from his crimes. And in their case, in what they said after the case, I'd like to read to you from what they said. And see if you see anything here that sort of strikes resemblance to what we just heard. This is what the justices said. A pardon reaches both the punishment prescribed for the offense and the guilt of the offender. And when the pardon is full, it releases the punishment and blots out of existence the guilt. So that in the eye of the law, the offender is as innocent as if he had never committed the crime. Isn't that fascinating? Wherever you find truth, it has its origins in God's Word. We see the justices understand that guilt can be taken away by an executive pardon. And once taken away, that person is as innocent as they were before they committed the crime. In fact, they go on to say this at the end of their ruling. They say, if granted before conviction... It prevents any of the penalties and disabilities consequent upon conviction from attaching. If granted after conviction, after they've been found guilty, it removes the penalties and disabilities and restores him to all his civil rights. It makes him, as it were, a new man and gives him a new credit and capacity. Doesn't it remind you of Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 5 that we are a new creation? that the old is gone, the new is here, because Jesus Christ has borne our sins, we have received an executive pardon. Our guilt is no more. Our sins are no more. They have been taken away. And we stand today in the presence of God free from sin, free from guilt. We can stand fully upright in his presence with humility But we can stand knowing that our sins have been atoned for. And that's exactly what happens to Isaiah. Because he tells us that the very next thing that happens is the Lord says, who shall I send and who will go for us? And you can see Isaiah at the temple now, instead of flat down on the ground, jumping up and down and says, here I am, here I am, send me. Send me, Lord. And we see the grace of God overwhelming Isaiah to the point that he would do something that you would never do, and that is jump up and down in the temple. Not the earthly temple, but the heavenly temple, because he understands the grace of God that he has just experienced. He understands it. And what does he do? He volunteers to serve. There's no instruction as where he's going or what he's going to be doing. It's just the Lord saying, who will go? And Isaiah says, I will. One author wrote that if you have to be talked into serving, if you have to be convinced to serve, that you truly don't understand grace. That's what Isaiah understood. God's grace. And it changed his entire life because of who God said he was. You didn't have to talk Isaiah into volunteering. If you have to be talked into serving, talked into going and sharing his word, then you truly don't understand the grace in which you live. It doesn't change the grace in which you live. Peter says you're just ignorant of it. You've become nearsighted and blind and forgotten that all your sins have been forgiven. And so we, like Isaiah, need to strive to stand in the presence of God. To realize that our sins have been forgiven, and they have been forgiven. We have been cleansed for a purpose. To be sent on his mission. To go and to share that good news. To serve him and his mission. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. He says, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. We have been saved to serve him. We have been cleansed to be commissioned for him. Every day God's calling us and saying, who shall I send? Who shall I send? Just like the disciples, Jesus, before he went back to heaven, after he had been resurrected, said to them, I am the true king. I am the king. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, in my authority, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. And surely I am with you always, even until the end of the age. God has promised us that he is with us, that we are always in his presence, and that he has promised to strengthen us as we seek and knock and ask for his faith, for his strength, To go when he calls. And it may not be a prophet. It may be a small step. But we take a page from Isaiah's book and we don't harden our hearts. And we well up with pride and think we're too good. But we go. But just like Isaiah found out, not everyone's going to listen. It's not going to be a simple, easy call. Because we read, the very next thing, it says, go and tell all of these people, tell this people, this Jewish people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Their hearts will be calloused. They will not listen to you. They will not repent. They will not return and be healed. We know as we share the good news of Jesus Christ that some will reject that. They will reject the fact that they have been pardoned. And just like the Supreme Court ruled in that ruling later, that that pardon could be rejected and would no longer be valid. God's pardon can be rejected. And we know, as we share, that some will reject it, but some won't. we see the very next thing that Isaiah says, which reveals something else about his heart that had been changed. He says, for how long, Lord? Now maybe you read this and say, think that he's saying, well how long do I have to preach to these stiff-necked people? You know, like 10 years and then I'm done? Because I don't think I could handle much more? How long am I gonna have to teach these people and they don't listen to me? That's not what he's asking. That's not the heart of his question. The heart of his question is, how long will they reject you? Will they all reject you? Will they all experience devastation? Isaiah's heart is breaking for his people. He understands that he's a person of unclean lips, and these people are no different than he is. He's no different than they are. And yet he's been shown mercy, and they're going to reject him, and he understands what that feels like. And he's concerned for his people. How long, Lord? How long will this happen? And God tells him that the land will be destroyed. People will be carried away into captivity. And even after that, there'll be a tent. There'll be a remnant in the land. But even then, destruction will come. And people will be destroyed. And the land will be laid waste. Then he says, just like the terrapins and the oak leave stumps in the land when they're cut down, the holy seed is in the stump. There's hope. Not all will perish, Isaiah. Not all will perish. Because the Lord your God has mercy and seeks for all men to be saved. Isaiah has hope as we have hope when we share his story. Because we know our sins have been atoned for. Isaiah later in his book tells us this in chapter 53. As he speaks of Jesus, He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered Him punished by God, stricken by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that Isaiah's sins were atoned for, that his guilt was taken away. It is because of the death of Jesus Christ that the world's sins have been taken away and atoned for. That God has issued a legal pardon. That is the good news. That Paul tells us that we are ambassadors of. That we are called to share that word. That good news with the world. That doesn't know him. Knowing. Not all will receive that message. Some will reject it. Some will hear it. And turn. And be saved. That's the hope with which we enter this new year. That God is still on his throne. He is still king of kings, regardless of what you see. God is always on his throne. And he promises to always be with you. So we don't go alone. That's why we gather here, to remind ourselves that we are not alone. That's why we spend time in this word, so that he himself can remind us that we are not alone. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you, he says. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching them. Go. We have been saved, not just for ourselves, but for the world, so that the world would know that he is God, that God himself has issued a legal pardon that is effective for anyone who stops rejecting it. What a great mission he's given us. Let us spend 2019 living that mission each and every day. I would encourage you to spend time in his word each and every day so that each and every day you hear his call and your response is, here I am, Lord. Here I am. Send me. Send me. Amen. Would you pray with me?